Hello everyone, my name is Hugo, and with me today is Larkin, and we are happy to bring you another installment of the Nature in the Classical World podcast series. With today's podcast, we'd like to discuss the relationship between humanity and the divine through, through the works of classical poets. Within the different works we've discussed this semester, we see how, over time, and through changes in how we view natural occurrences, the relationship between man and the divine changes. We'll start by looking at the Iliad of Homer, an ancient Greek author thought to have lived around the 8th century B.C., then we'll move to the time of the pre-Socratics, namely Anaximander and Xenophanes, who lived during the 6th and 5th centuries. Lastly, we will look at the nature of things written by Lucretius, who lived during the 1st century BC. These works provide us with an insight as to how man's relationship changed with the divine as time went on. By observing the natural world, Lucretius and the pre-Socratics began to challenge the ideas of society during the time of Homer. We begin with the Iliad, the story of Achilles, and the last part of the Trojan War. The first quotation we'll take a look at is from the very first book. So, at this part of the story, the Greeks sack a town and take two maidens, Chryseis and Briseis, in their victory. Chryseis, who serves as a priest of the god Apollo, offers an enormous ransom in return for his daughter. But Agamemnon refuses to give Chryseis back. Chryseis then pr prays to Apollo, who sends a plague upon the Greek camp. After many Greeks die, Agamemnon consults the prophet Calchas to, to determine the cause of the plague. When he learns that Chryseis is the cause, he, re he reluctantly gives her up, but then demands Briseis from Achilles as compensation. This is the point where Achilles refuses to enter battle, and he starts to sulking in his tent. And the quote goes as follows. Thus he prayed, and Phoebus Apollo heard him, and set off from the heights of Olympus, rage in his heart, with his bow on his shoulders and his hooded quiver. The arrow arrows clattered on his shoulders as he raged, as the god himself moved, and he came like the night. Then far from the ships he crouched and let loose an arrow, and terrible was the ring of his silver bow. First he went after the mules and sleek dogs, but then, letting fly a sharp arrow, he struck at the men themselves, and the crowded pyres of the dead burned without ceasing. So I think it's pretty important to note that this is from the, you know, the opening pages of the Iliad, and it sort of sets the tone um, between the human and the divine's relationship. Um, we see how the divine powers play an active role in human life, and oftentimes it's destructive, or at least right here, immediately, right off the bat, it's, you know, Greeks are dying. Right, and it shows that, you know, um, the Greek gods used nature as a way of um you know using their anger against mankind and you know it shows that these gods had human emotion and all these different horrible natural disasters are happening because of the will of the gods and it's not just because that's how nature works but rather um the gods you know using their power to get back at them mm -hmm. um so next we're going to take a look at um, a quotation from much later in the book, um, uh, a scene that you might be familiar with um, when Achilles fights the river Scamander. And so here we go. And spear-famed Achilles leapt into, the mid into midstream, springing from the overhanging bank, and with a seething surge the river sped toward him and made turbulent all the streaming waters as he turned them and shoved aside the many bodies that were clotted around along his stream. So, you know, so this, this quote really shows that uh, the Greeks' understanding of nature and you know the rough waters that 
the, uh, this commander is having at this time is due to something that humans did. And that's it's the God's way of retaliating for these acts. You know, Scamander is sick and tired of having these bodies dumped into the river by Achilles, you know, during the war. And so he begins to fight Achilles himself, you know, through these raging waters. You know, it really starts to show that um, in order to explain these actions, the Greeks turn to the idea that uh, it's the gods. It's not just because mm-hmm. an increase in water flow in the river. It's, you know, the gods being angry at Achilles. Yeah. Um, I think it's cool, too. Uh, like the sense of pollution and uh, maybe purity and impurity um, in regards to, like, the natural world. Um, I'm sure the ancient people didn't have the same conception of, you know, climate change and pollution as we do now, but still they sort of still have a, you know, sense of what is right and wrong when it comes to the natural world. Right. They kind of have a a sense of responsibility when it comes to keeping the natural world uh, clean, you know, and, you know, that also builds off the idea of them, you know, they're, they're seeing nature as the gods and therefore they should be respectful in order to, um, you know, be able to live their lives in a peaceful way without having the gods have to, you know, step in and ruin everything for them. Mm-hmm. And so next we're going to jump into the pre-Socratics, and we're going to begin to see how the people of this time started to challenge the ideas that the gods were responsible for all of these natural occurrences. First, we'll be looking at Anaximander, a pre-Socratic philosopher who lived during the 7th and 6th centuries BC. Uh, he belonged to the Milesian school in Miletus, and right away we can see how his philosophical ideas differ from the Iliad. Okay, here's the first quotation. Anaximander says that these, thunder, lightning, thunderbolts, water spouts, and hurricanes, all result from wind. For, for whenever wind is enclosed in thick cloud and forcibly escapes because it is so fine and light, then the bursting of the cloud creates the noise and the splitting creates the flash against the blackness of the cloud. So this is totally different from what we read in the Iliad. We can see how Anaximander is attempting to explain natural causes or natural occurrences um, through reason. He's sort of trying to, um, I don't think we can jump to uh, sort of like calling this a scientific explanation. Of course not. Right. He doesn't really give, uh, you know, uh, uh, he doesn't, he hypothesizes a lot of things, but he's not really taking these ideas from scientific experimentation or really even much more than just a baseline observation you know he's just seeing these dark clouds and the wind is present at this time and he's you know he's like oh maybe this is the connection Mm -hmm. but he doesn't really try to to prove that i think he's just trying to you know begin the conversation of like oh this isn't zeus in the clouds anymore this is nature or wind Mm -hmm. um i think well it might seem like these ideas might have been really radical I think it's sort of interesting that um, there's these different schools of thought and how, uh, you know, going to study at one of them was um, sort of uh, a desired or popular thing to do. Um, So it shows that, like, uh, although the ideas might have been radical, uh, there's still, you know, some support surrounding them. Right, yeah. You know, it's also important to see that, you know, these people are, you know, an axe matter and then we'll see with Xenophanes as well, you know, they're, they're trying to move the discussion to where it hasn't been before. You know, they're trying to be innovative in their ideas. Mm-hmm. And so on that note, we'll move on to Xenophanes, you know, quotes from him. So the first one goes as follows. Both Homer and Hesiod have ascribed to the gods all deeds, which among men are matters of reproach and blame, thieving, adultery, and deceiving one another. Yeah. Um, I think he's sort of just 
goes right out and says it. Uh, <laughs> like Homer and Hesiod, um, they have have a totally different conception of um, like the happenings of the world. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, with this quote, you can kind of see how Xenophanes is blatantly challenging the ideas before him. He's, you know, this doesn't necessarily relate directly to uh, nature, but it does. Re- you know, it's sh- it's showing that blame isn't on the gods. That blame is on humans in this case. You know, it's uh, it's really attacking. Homer and Hesiod, you know, is taking the blame away from gods and putting it on themselves. Mm-hmm. And so with the second quote, uh, we have the earth's upper limit is seen here at our feet, touching the air, but the lower part goes down without limit. And so, I mean, yeah, right off the bat, we see, you know, he's making this claim, but there's nothing to back it up with. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. None of them had the capabilities, of course, to test this out, but I think, um, Claiming that, you know, below the earth is infinite is sort of also kind of a radical idea. Um, you know, in Homer's world or Hesiod's world, they probably thought that, you know, eventually you'd run into the underworld and maybe, you know, the river sticks. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, we're also we're also seeing that these philosophers, you know, they're not right. You know, like as, we, as we've progressed in science and all that, we prove, we, I mean, we can obviously prove them wrong that, you know, the, the earth's, you know, upper limit i mean isn't always there you know it, it expands the atmosphere you know we the, the earth has its own atmosphere it's not just that um it's touching the air but the air is also part of that mm-hmm. and so it also shows obviously that you know there is a limit to going down further enough into the core surface mm-hmm. well, i guess the key thing to note with the pre-socratics is just that they both in their ideas uh, about um, humanity's relationship with the gods and also their explanation of natural forces, um, they're questioning. They're not sort of accepting what Homer has written to be true. Right. They're pushing the uh, the conversation to a place where it's never been before. And I think this is a really good time to then you know trans uh, transition into the last part of our discussion when we look at the nature of things by Lucretius, who takes this conversation to a whole new level of detail and you know begins to provide an explanation for these claims. Lucretius lived during the late Roman Republic. With the Roman victories at both Carthage and Corinth in 146 BCE, there was an influx of Greek culture and ideas to Rome. This Greek influence may have inspired Lucretius to expound on Epicurean ideas. Lucretius offers the ancient Roman world a new but radical perspective on humanity's relationship with the divine by proposing an atomic model for the universe. He writes the nature of things as a didactic poem tackling the difficult relationship between science and philosophy. Lucretius himself acknowledges the difficulty of what he attempts to do. He is successful in providing entertaining and sometimes eerily accurate scientific information. So to begin with Lucretius, I want to make clear that you know, Lucretius does believe in the gods, but he believes that these gods are taking more of a backseat approach um, and that these gods really have nothing to do with uh, our world as we see it or as we experience it. He actually even goes as far as saying is that the religion that the Greeks before him and the Romans before him were practicing actually lead us to be worse people and really have no effect on what happens in our lives. He uses the example of Agamemnon's sacrifice of his daughter, beginning in the first book, where he says, One thing I am concerned about, you might, as you commence philosophy, decide that uh, decide you see impiety therein, and that the path you enter is an avenue to sin. More often, on the contrary, it is religion breeds wickedness, and that has given rise to wrongful deeds, as when the leaders of the Greeks, those peerless peers, 
defiled the virgin's altar with the blood of Agamemnon's child, Iphigenia. As soon as they bound the fillet around her hair so that it, the, so its end streamed down her cheeks, the girl became aware that waiting at the temple for thee would be no groom. Instead, she saw her father with a, a countenance of gloom. Attended by the priests who kept the blade hid well, the sight of people shedding tears to see her froze her tongue with fright. She sank to the ground upon her knees. It did not mean a thing for the princess now that she had been the first to give the king the name of father. No, for shaking the poor girl was carried by the hands of men up to the altar. Not that she would be married with solemn ceremony to the accompanying strain of loud longson bridal hymns, but as a maiden, pure of stain, to be impurely slaughtered at the age when she should wed. Sorrowful sacrifice slain at her father's hand instead. All this was fair and favorable winds to sail the fleet along, so potent was religion in persuading to do wrong. You know, Lucretius uses this example as to show that, you know, Agamemnon needed these winds um, in order to move his ships across the seas. And these winds, he decided, was only going to happen, were only going to happen if he made a sacrifice to the gods. And by doing so, he ended up killing his only daughter. Yeah, I think uh, it's sort of a, a radical claim to make in this time period that religion was a force and like a destructive force that people sort of, they almost use it as like an excuse to do things. Um, that they should not be doing. Like, clearly, the story is an example of that. Right. L Lucretius then begins to explain sort of the atomic model that he bases his entire poem upon. By bringing in the argument of the atoms, Lucretius provides us with something to back his claim that the gods are not the cause of natural forces. He makes an effort to prove this in book one. Quotation goes as follows. Nature's prime particles, from which she nourishes and grows, all things, and into which... Once more, she makes them decompose. We term them in philosophy according to our needs, matter, atoms, generative bodies, elements, and needs, and first beginnings, since it is from these that all proceeds. Um, so this is sort of like the basis of all of Lucretius's poem. Um, he tries to explain like the entire universe. He starts small with atoms, and by the end, he's talking about you know the cosmological forces. Right. Yeah. He's saying that it's not the gods that are you know, making all these natural things occur, but it's the movement of these atoms, the collisions of these atoms with each other, the stretching of these atoms that are, you know, causing everything in the, in the world as we see it. And so with that, we'd like to wrap up our podcast. Um, we thank you for listening, and we hope that through this podcast, you guys were able to you know, get a better understanding of how the classical world's view of the divine and nature and humans uh, began to shift over time and through observation of the natural world itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how we can see um, through these different examples uh, in a relatively short amount of time how, you know, the entire, you know, human society's perception began to change, although it did take, you know, a much longer time for the entire world to follow. 